Okay, okay, we're going to get to the podcast in just one minute. But imagine I gave you the opportunity to invest in Microsoft, in Apple, in Tesla at its infancy. And now you made all this profit and it would be unbelievable. You'd be so thankful and so grateful. I believe that that day is today for Torch. Because for the next 36 hours, every donation you contribute at givetorch.net is doubled by our generous matchers, and you can come in at the ground floor. Yes, last year, over 1 million people enjoyed our podcasts. You as well, I hope. And I believe we can get to 10 million this year, but we need your help. It's only one day a year that we ask. We need your contribution. We need your partnership. We love your partnership and your friendship. Please contribute at givetorch.net, givetorch.net. Every dollar is matched. I apologize for taking your time. Thank you so much in advance for your support. Enjoy this episode. You are listening to Rabbi Arya Wolby of Torch in Houston, Texas. This is the Parsha Review Podcast. All right, welcome back everybody to the weekly Parsha Review. This week's Parsha is Parsha's Korach, the fifth portion in the book of Numbers, in the book of Bamidbar, the 38th portion since we began reading the Torah. From Genesis, we have 95 verses in this week's Parsha, 1,409 words, and 5,325 letters. There are nine mitzvahs in this week's Parsha, five performative mitzvahs, and four prohibitions. Very, very exciting Parsha, because we have the rebellion of Korach. Korach is a first cousin to Moshe and Aaron. And Korach of the tribe of Levi, Dasan of Aviram, and On from Reuven, from the tribe of Reuven, together with 250 leaders from Reuven, challenge Moshe and Aaron's leadership. Moshe tells Korach, tomorrow Hashem will decide who is the appointed one. Aaron and your gang will offer the Ketoros, the incense offering, and we will see whose Hashem chooses. Moshe was hoping that they would reconsider their rebellion. Moshe attempts to convince Korach to reconsider. Then Moshe attempts to sway Dasan and Aviram and summons them, but they refuse to show up, claiming, you took us from the land of milk and honey to have us die here in the desert. The next day they assembled at the tent of meeting with their pans for the katores, the incense offering. Hashem told Moshe and Aaron to distance themselves from the rebels and the earth beneath them opened up, it opened its mouth, and they, their wives, their children, their possessions were swallowed. A heavenly fire consumed the 250 men who were bringing the Katoris incense offering opposite our own. And then there was a protest. Hashem commanded Moshe to take the holy pans with which the offerings were brought to be hammered out, and become the lining for the holy altar as a reminder to the Jewish people that only a Kohen from the family of Aaron may bring offerings on the altar. The next day, people complain, blaming Moshe and Aaron, saying, why did you kill Korach and his people? Hashem got angry and wanted to destroy them, but Moshe intercedes and brings offerings to Hashem to atone for their sin, but a plague ensued, and 14,700 people died before Aaron's offering saved the rest from the plague. And then we see Aaron's greatness. 
Aaron's greatness is revealed. Hashem commands Moshe to tell the leaders of each tribe to inscribe their name on the staff that will be presented before Hashem in the Mishkan in the tent of meeting. The next day, only Aaron's staff miraculously blossoms with almonds. This was a clear and divine sign. Hashem told Moshe to save Aaron's staff in the Holy of Holies as a reminder for future complainers. And then they're restoring order amidst the Jewish people. Hashem reiterates the role of the Kohanim and the Levites in the Mishkan. Only they can serve in the temple, and any alien who approaches shall die. And if you remember, in our recent Thinking Talmudist that we studied, together there was a convert who came to Hillel and to Shammai and said, convert me on condition that I become a high priest. And he learned from this verse in our parasha that any alien who approaches shall die. And that's how he learned that, you know what? As a convert, as a Israelite, as a Yisrael, not a Levi or a Kohen, you're also considered a, quote, alien, and you're not allowed to attempt to approach the temple, the tabernacle, definitely not to bring an offering. That's only for a Kohen, and the Levites would assist them. So the Kohanic privileges, Hashem declares that the Kohanim shall receive 24 gifts from all the offerings that are brought to the temple, the first fruits of the land, the first of the animals, and also the first of the humans, the first child of the humans. Hashem promises this with a bris melech, a covenant of salt. Just like salt is a preservative, so too Hashem says the relationship between the Kohanim and the Jewish people and Hashem is preserved just like salt is. Surely the Kohen will redeem the firstborn of man and of impure animals. So if someone has a donkey and we have to redeem the firstborn donkey, but the Kohen can't eat the donkey. It's not kosher. So what they would do is they would redeem that donkey for money and then they can use that money for buying food and buying things that they would like. The Kohen, his son, and daughters all benefit from these gifts. And it's an unmarried daughter. Once she's married, she can no longer benefit from the gifts of the Kohuna if her husband isn't a Kohen. The Kohen and Levite families will not receive a portion in the land, as the Torah tells us in this week's Parsha. Hashem is their portion. The Levites are to receive a tithe from the best produce of the land. And then the Parsha concludes that the Levites must give a tithe to the Kohen, a tithe of a tithe. They get the tithe from the land, and they must still give a tithe of what they got, of what they received, to the Kohanim. And that concludes the summary of this week's Parsha. But then we begin some important, important lessons that must be discussed about this week's Parsha. So firstly, we see that what in the world was Korach thinking? Didn't Korach see that Moshe was the leader of the Jewish people? Moshe was the proven leader. He was tested multiple times. He was tested by the people in Egypt. He was tested by the people when they were splitting the sea. He was tested by the people when there was the, the battle with the Amalek, Amalekites. He was tested when there was the complainers with the mana. He was tested a time and again and again and again. What was Korach thinking? 
What was he thinking to rebel against Moshe? So here is a very, very important lesson that our sages teach us. And that is jealousy is poisonous. Jealousy infects the mind. It infects the emotion. It infects the entire human being. And when a person thinks that they just want something, they have to be very, very careful and know the source of what is the reason behind it. If it's jealousy, run the other way. Because it's an infection and it's poisonous and it's going to harm you. You're going to head down a path that's going to be very dangerous. And Korach fell right into that trap, the trap of jealousy. He saw what Moshe and Aaron had, his first cousins, and made a whole argument, creating an uprising just because he was jealous that he wasn't the selected one. But who selected Moshe and Aaron? They weren't self-appointed. They were appointed by Hashem. But still, they justify it in their mind because of jealousy. Why does he think he can have this? Why does he think he can? And people do this, by the way, in business. Someone was just telling me yesterday how someone was in a situation, their neighborhood, everyone is going on certain vacations, which is why I'm a big, big fan that don't publicize your vacations. Nobody needs to know that you went to Disneyland. Nobody needs to go that you're going in the cruise through Europe. And you don't have to share it with the world. Nobody needs to know. Because you probably have at least one neighbor who can't afford it and whose wife is sitting there looking at her Facebook feed saying everybody's going on vacation except for us. And he may be jealous and that might cause him to do things that are terrible like being untruthful in business, being dishonest, just so that he can fulfill that jealousy. And this is what Korach fell into. Not only Korach, but also all of his neighbors in the south of the camp encampments, as we mentioned previously in the Parsha Review podcast, that the neighbors of Korach were also infected by his evil ways. As the Mishnah tells us, woe to the wicked person and woe to his neighbor because we're affected by our environment. And if we have a negative environment, we will be affected negatively. If we have a positive envir- environment, we will be affected positively. And here, Korach's neighbors were negatively affected, which is why he was able to persuade 250 leaders of the tribe of Ruvain to go against Hashem and to go against Moshe. So there's a very important question that needs to be asked. Moshe has prayed for every group of sinners. Moshe prays after the sin of the golden calf. Moshe prays after the sin of all of the complainers, of the spies, everything you can possibly imagine. Moshe prays to protect and defend the sinners. Till it comes to Korach. And if you're an undiscerning onlooker, you'd think, Oh, Moshe's own seat is in, 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 in trouble here. Moshe's own seat is being threatened. That's why he doesn't pray for Korach. God forbid. Moshe was not such a selfish individual. What is the reason that Moshe here says to Hashem, you need to 
eradicate these people. You need to get rid of them. Contrary to every other experience, even soon we'll see, at the end of this week's parsha, there's the protest, the people are complaining, how can it be that Moshe, you had these, uh, Korach and his people killed? Moshe prays for them too. Aaron brings an offering as an atonement for them. We don't see Moshe saying, yeah, punish them too. On the contrary, we always see Moshe standing up for the Jewish people, except for Korach. What was so terrible about Korach that was so poisonous about Korach that he needed him out? So let me tell you something. We're living in a world today of Korach. What is the difference between a true liberal and a leftist? A liberal is someone who is kind-hearted and elevates the downtrodden, who wants to give every person an opportunity to elevate themselves. Do you know what a leftist is? A leftist is let's pull down the successful because everyone has the same words, the same words of equality. Oh, how we all turn into a ball of mush when we hear about equality. Oh, everyone should be equal, and that's so beautiful. It's a value that we all appreciate. But there are different ways to get to equality. There's either give everyone an opportunity, give them, op- give them jobs, give them, the, give them the ability to get into the great universities, give them the ability to get jobs, Give them the ability to compete. We're all for that. That's not leftists. That's the Avraham Avinu. That's the kind people. Let's raise everybody up. But then you have leftists. You have the Korach. That what do they do? They want to pull the successful down. You can't drive that SUV. You can't, you know, run that corporation, those evil corporations, they call it. That is the, that's communism. That's equality through communism. We're going to pull down your success. That is evil. There's not a problem with a person wanting to give others opportunity. That's what we're all about. We see that. Look, look at what Avram Avinu did. Look what Abraham, our patriarch, did. There were wicked people in Sodom. He says, no, no, let's give them opportunity. If there's only 50 righteous, let's save them. If there's 40 righteous, 30, 20, 10, even 10 there wasn't. Okay, Sashem says, that's it. There aren't enough righteous people. What are we going to do? How are we going to raise them up? Not enough to raise up. We have to understand that this is a calamity of our culture, of our society today. I have nothing against liberals. On the contrary, our patriarch, Abraham, was a liberal. He was the quintessential, he was the first soup kitchen. Anybody, fed everybody, give everybody blessings, give everybody opportunity. We're all for that. But to start pulling corporations down that we don't like, Enriching ourselves, this whole culture, this whole Washington, D.C., is one big swamp of corruption. That's my opinion. But that's not, it's not worth 
the time on our Parsha podcast to discuss it. But I just want to link this to Korach. Korach complained, the entire people, we're all holy. We're all equal. Then he comes with his complaint. Why are you on top? Let's pull you down. And he comes with some clever arguments. And then he starts questioning Hashem in his Torah. He says, a garment that's all blue shouldn't need tzitzis. A home that's filled with books shouldn't need a mezuzah. So he's starting to use all of these arguments, and that's the trap. The trap is you start legitimizing. You start making rationalizations that are all flawed. And the moment you start creating alternatives to Hashem's Torah, that's when you're done. When people, and might I say, make a religion out of tikkun olam, an entire religion out of tikkun olam, where do they get this from? Where does this tikkun olam come from? You know where it says tikkun olam? It says it one place in Aleinu, in our prayers. Litaken olam b'malchut shaddai. Perfect this world with God's holy kingdom. Not by picking up papers on the street, on the bayou. Yes, it's very good. It's very special. It's a good act. It's a good deed. That's what the Torah is about. The Torah is about recycling. That's what the Torah is about. It's a very virtuous quality. How about bringing God into this world? That's what the real tikkun olam is. With so many opportunities to do good things. But instead, unfortunately, many, many rabbis out there are dumbing down Judaism. It's just tikkun olam. Tikkun olam. Without having any frame of reference, keeping people ignorant from what the real source of this is, to bring God into this world. We have a lot of work to do as a people. And definitely Korach should not be our example. That's something we should live up to. On the contrary, it's something we should run away from. To source our Torah. To demand to have quality Jewish education. To not suffice with little tikkun olam phrases. To say, what does God really want from us? And unfortunately, I'm uncomfortable with a rabbi driving to shul with his seven-day-a-week parking spot reserved, lecturing me about Judaism. I'm sorry. To me, it seems disingenuous. It seems flawed. It seems sad that this is the face of Judaism. It's tragic. We have a Torah. The Torah guides us exactly how to live life. The problem is, is that I believe you're a member of a Reformed temple. You were two Reformed temples. So let me tell you, so let me tell you, I have a, I have a theory. I have a theory. I have a theory that most Reformed Jews are not Reformed Jews. They're Orthodox Jews, members at a Reformed temple. I don't even, I don't like the word Orthodox either. They're Torah Jews in a reform temple with reform membership. Let me tell you why. 
Do you believe the Torah was given at Mount Sinai? Okay, so you're already not a Reform Jew. The Reform movement, on its very platform, denounces the Torah being given at Mount Sinai. So there you are. You're already not a Reformed Jew. I remember I had a student once who, you know, it used to be on Facebook back in the olden days in 2008, 2007, when people was just, it was just starting. So you were able to put religion, religious affiliation before it became politically uh, incorrect to do that. So I remember one of my friends, I got a notification that he changed his profile. And he's no longer a Reformed Jew. He's now a conservative Jew. So I, I remember we were talking later when I, when I met him. I said, I don't understand. What changed? He says, well, I'm definitely not Reform anymore. But I'm not Orthodox either. So I got to be conservative. So I said, do you believe in the 613 mitzvahs that are God-given? And that they're relevant today? He says, of course said, even if we don't observe them, you still believe in them? Says, yes. I said, then you really don't believe in conservative movement. The entire platform of the conservative movement. And even though it's a, officially, it was crafted as a halachic movement, when it pleases us, it's a halachic movement. And don't get me wrong, I'm not a fan of this whole terminology of orthodox either. There's a Torah. The Torah is equal to every single Jew. The Torah is a God-given document. We're not part of movements. Where does this nonsense come from? If you believe that the Torah was given at Mount Sinai, that we have 613 mitzvahs that bind us and connect us with the Almighty, you're a Torah Jew. Oh, I'm not there yet. So fine. That's fine. I'm not either there yet. Do I speak Lashon Hara? It's a biblical prohibition, by the way. Yes. Oh, so we're not all there yet. So, but at least I believe in the truth of the veracity of the Torah, the authenticity of the Torah, and not chop it down, and not dumbify it. So the real question is, how many reminders do we need as a Jewish people? How many reminders do we need? The Torah is constantly reminding us, be careful, be careful. Don't go against Hashem. Hashem gave us the Torah. Don't try me. Don't test me. And we see again in this week's parsha. So the quick question we want to, want to address is, why almonds? Why did almonds blossom from Aaron's? It could have just been that it would turn into gold. It would, it, something mir- miraculous would happen with his staff. Why did it have to blossom almonds? So our sages tell us that almonds grow the quickest. They're the quickest growing fruit. But also to tell us that the Levites are like almonds. They work very quickly. And those who mess with the Kohanim and the Levites, their punishment will be swift as well. So there's many different parts of this, but the idea here is that, and this is Rashi, the commentator, he says over here that we need to be cautious, we need to be careful. If you mess with the structure that the Almighty created of the Kohen, the Levi, the Israel, we're playing with fire and there's a swift punishment to ensue. Finally, the last part of this week's Parsha 
Oh, the covenant of salt is just very interesting why there's a halacha that tells us that we should dip our challah, our bread, into salt. Whenever we eat bread, you should dip your, your bread into salt. It's the covenant of salt. This is the source for it because salt is a preservative. We preserve our relationship with the Almighty and every table is considered like a shulchan, like an altar where we're bringing offerings to Hashem and therefore this is symbolizing our eternal bond with the Almighty. That's why we have salt on our table. But then at the end of the parsha, we have about the tithes that were given to the Levites, and then the Levites would still give a tithe to the Kohanim. Many people get confused about what's the difference between tithes and charity. So tithes, let's just back up for a second. The halacha, the Torah tells us that anything you earn, you need to give a tithe of your earnings. That means you go to work and you get a paycheck of $1,000. is not yours. Hashem gives you that hundred for you to give it away. Give it away to charity. Now, tzedakah is not tithe. Tzedakah is what you give of the 90% that you retain. The 90% that's yours, that is what you give tzedakah from. But the tithe, the tithe doesn't even belong to you. So if someone wants to merit to incredible wealth, our sages tell us, give another 10%. It should be 20%, which is a chomesh, a fifth of your earnings, and you are guaranteed there's a promise from our sages for unbelievable wealth. Many people have a challenge. I've said the story before. A, a, great, a rabbi that I met here in Houston He was visiting. I thought he was here to collect for charity. Someone called me, said, would you mind he stay at your house for Shabbos? No problem. After Shabbos, we departed from Shabbos with Havdalah. And then I said to him, you know, come come to my office. We'll we'll talk. And I came to my study in my house. I said, so I pulled out a checkbook. Like, what charity are you here for? He started laughing. He says, put away the checkbook. He says, I'm not here to collect for any charity. He says, I don't need anybody's charity. I said, really? So, so why why did you come? He says, I want you to get your wife and, and children. I want to tell you my story. So he was newly wed. He was a Baal Teshuva. He was new to uh, religious life. He was living in Jerusalem. And he already had his first child. And they were living in absolute poverty. He was a trained sofer, a scribe. And he had a drawer filled with mezuzahs and filling. He couldn't sell them. He had no way to market them, no way to get them out. And he had no idea how he's going to pay his rent and how he's going to put food on his table. Literally, he said he had an empty fridge with nothing, nothing. So he went to his rabbi and he said to his rabbi, you know, we're in such poverty. I want to get a release from having to give a tithe. Because I'm so poor myself that the tithe is just like taking away the, the, the bread for my child. I don't have anything. The rabbi said, look, this question is too big for me. You have to go to Rabbi Scheinberg. See, he went to Rabbi Pinchas Scheinberg. He's a great, great Torah sage. And he asks Rabbi Scheinberg, he tells him his story. And Rabbi Scheinberg says to him, 
I want you to promise me that not only you're not going to give a tithe, but you're going to give 20%. That's the promise I want you to make, that you're going to promise me you're going to give 20%. It's like, what? I came to get off 10%, not to give another 10 on top of that. So just make that promise, and you'll have unbelievable success. He says, let me talk to my wife. He goes home, talks to his wife. His wife's like, I don't understand. Of course you should make that promise. 20% of nothing is still nothing. <laughs> of course you should do that. So he, he says, okay, make the promise. He says, okay, I'm promising that from here on in, we're going to give 20%. A few moments later, the phone rings. It's his first rabbi that he asked from the yeshiva for the, says, where are you right now? He says, I'm home. He says, get to the yeshiva right now. He told me he didn't even have enough money for a cab. He asked the rabbi, how should I get to the yeshiva? I don't have money for, he says, borrow from your neighbor. Borrow from your neighbor and get here immediately. Gets to the yeshiva, standing with the rabbi. He's an old student of the yeshiva, one of the alumnus of the yeshiva. And he has a very successful Judaica store in New York City. But he has one problem. He has no one to provide him with the scrolls for mezuzah and for tefillin. He says, you're a scribe, aren't you? He says, would you? He brings his, his, he shows him some of his writings. He says, this is magnificent. This is amazing. He says, I want to have an exclusive contract with you. And he said, for 20 years, this Judaica store bought everything he could possibly write. He said he never had a single scroll sitting in his drawer. It was written, he showed me some of, in, sitting in my house, he showed me some of, it was like, wow, unbelievable. It was so beautiful. I said, can I buy this right here? This mezuzah right here? He says, this was sold two years ago. I'm going to deliver it to San Antonio. He sold already two years ahead. all from making a promise for giving 20%. You see, the pro- the problem is, is that people feel that we own everything. The moment we realize that everything is really Hashem's, Hashem says, now I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you my blessing. Make that promise of 20% and you'll see unbelievable blessing. My dear friends, have an amazing Shabbos.